huge development in the case of a California man we've been following. He is now free after being cleared of a murder that he did not commit. Prosecutors used DNA evidence to name a new suspect. You know, he's been working with a group called the Northern California Innocence Project for nearly a decade. He has always maintained his innocence in this brutal murder, and now he has a chance to create a new life for himself. After nearly 15 years behind bars, Ricky Davis walked into the arms of his family Thursday, vindicated and grateful. Just glad to be out. I'm, I'm setting everything behind me. Without investigative genetic genealogy, we would not be here today. Pick up the pieces and, and move forward and make the best of what's left. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. This is Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. Our podcast also seeks to examine some of the most unique cases uh, with oftentimes perhaps unexpected endings. And the podcast that we're going to talk about today is going to be a case called People versus Ricky Davis. It was a case out of El Dorado County uh, that happened, the crime happened in 1985. And my guests today are, in fact, Ricky Davis and his lawyer, Melissa O'Connell. In my conversation with Ricky Davis, I spoke to him by phone. I spoke to Melissa through a different device. I had an opportunity to talk to him and his attorney about how DNA led to the truth and DNA led to his exoneration and his release from jail. Thank you so much, Ricky and Melissa, for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Ricky, thanks for being here. You hear, you hear us okay there? Uh, yes, ma'am, I can, and thank you. Okay, so let me just... Um, let me start off by by giving the listeners a sense of what this crime was that then will lead us into how did Ricky Davis get caught up in this and ultimately perhaps um, one of the best things of all of this is how Ricky Davis was ultimately freed for a crime that he did not commit. So to, to give the listeners an idea of this, this was a brutal murder. It happened. Uh, it was discovered in the early morning hours of July 7th of 1985 when a woman by the name of Jane Hilton, who was 54 years old, living in a house in El Dorado Hills with her daughter, was found stabbed to death. I think it was upwards of 30 times. And, and Melissa, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that when we get to that later. Um, but she was found in her home. And in fact, she was found by Ricky Davis and his then girlfriend, Connie Dahl. Um, when an autopsy was conducted on Ms. Hilton, uh, the pathologist found that she'd been stabbed obviously repeatedly. She had significant injuries, uh, bruising and things of that nature. Um, but she also, uh, perhaps the most critical piece of, of evidence from that autopsy was that a bite mark was found on her upper left shoulder, which proved ultimately to be a very, very critical piece in this case. Um, and then ultimately, um, years later, and we're gonna get into that, Ricky Davis was charged and he was prosecuted and he was convicted. And we're gonna take you down uh, the road of how he was ultimately exonerated. And when I say exonerated, I don't mean just let out of jail, but actually found factually innocent. So let me, um, let me start. Uh, Melissa, why don't you just tell us kind of who you are and what you do? Thank you. Uh, my name is Melissa O'Connell. I am a staff attorney and policy liaison with the Northern California Innocence Project. Um, our office was founded 20 years ago uh, this year, actually, and our mission is to protect the innocent by litigating their cases, um, establishing that they were wrongfully convicted, and then advocating for policy reform to try to prevent wrongful convictions from happening or to intervene when they do happen, and then, of course, help our clients transition home successfully um, despite their wrongful incarceration. And we also educate the community on the causes of wrongful conviction 
and, and law students as well as they begin their legal career. And fair to say, uh, Melissa, that you and I have known each other, oh gosh, probably over 10 years now. Yeah, at least two children ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess that's the way to my, that's the way to milestone it. So uh, for about back, a decade. Yes. Yeah, back probably in the late 2000s, maybe 2009 or so, because I was doing DNA work in the DA's office and you were doing obviously post-conviction work. And we got to know each other well on some of the, the cases that you were looking at and our crime lab getting involved in many of those cases as well. Absolutely. So Ricky, um, obviously you were the subject of this prosecution. Um, so I wanna, if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of start off with um, really the night of July 7th, I think it was around 3.30 in the morning and, and you again can correct me if I'm wrong, but you found Jane Hilton, correct? Yes, ma'am. So if, if you don't mind, can you tell the listeners what that was like, uh, what it was like to find her? Um, exhilarating, uh, scary, um, and traumatizing. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, if, um, you know, what did you see? I mean, she was, she was obviously deceased, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So what did you do at that point? Did you, and you, you were there with your then girlfriend, Connie, right? Right. And did you guys call 911 at that point? Um, well, as soon as we went into the house, uh, we seen the blood uh, pretty much everywhere in the hallway. Um, yes, I called 911. And if I may, if I may jump in, um, because at the time, I think, you know, I think what's important is that Ricky was only 20 years old right. at the time. Connie was 19 and Jane's 13 year old daughter was actually present at the time too. And so when the three of them observed blood in this crime scene, and, and I think it's really important too, um, it was for Ricky that Jane was in his mom's bedroom. So um, I, I think that was equally just startling to him is that it was his mom's bedroom and he walks in and he finds Jane and, and, and she had obviously been stabbed numerous times and was found on the right. bed. Yeah, I can only imagine how traumatic it was. And, and I appreciate you, you know, mentioning that he was only 20. I mean, that, that is a factor that I'm sure that led to, to some of this involvement of her, his age, as well as Connie's age of being 19 and, and to some extent being vulnerable because they're, they're young. Um, so let me just kind of fast forward. I mean, when the law enforcement came out, Ricky, is it fair to say that from the day you found Jane, you have always, always maintained that you never committed this crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's, that to me is such a testament to, to ultimately the outcome. Um, so law enforcement comes out, you get interviewed, the case goes kind of cold for many years. Um, at one point, somebody was arrested, I think Jane's ex-husband or, or something like that, right, Melissa? He was questioned by law enforcement. Um, they were having marital issues, but uh, law enforcement very quickly, um, you know, accounted for his alibi. Uh, he was at a restaurant during the time in which the crime may have happened. And uh, so he was immediately eliminated as a suspect at that time. So let's move forward. It goes cold for many years. And then in 1999, so 15, 14 years later, um, law enforcement in El Dorado County reopens the case, correct, Melissa? That's right. And at that time, Connie, who's, who's still around, has been re now re-interviewed by law enforcement. And it's the first time now that she then implicates and really tries to pin this murder on Ricky. Fair to say, Ricky? Um, yes, ma'am. That's about how it went. So let me and just they ask hadn't you. Talked kind of, in fourteen years either. I apologize, uh, but they hadn't. Ricky and Connie hadn't been in touch for fourteen years at the time that law enforcement went and saw her. And Ricky, let me just ask you. I mean, you haven't seen this woman for fourteen years. Um, 
you've always stood by your innocence. And now all of a sudden you find out that your ex-girlfriend has said that you and her uh, were involved in this murder. What, how did that feel when you found out that she was putting this information forward to law enforcement? Well, at first, I, I, I got it from the newspaper, the Mountain Democrat, and I read it and I was like, this is crazy. And I know that they practice uh, gutter journalism and sensationalism, so I just kind of dismissed it. But then another article came out, and then another one, and it just seemed surreal. It just seemed crazy. Right. And then I'm assuming, well, Melissa, what you know, obviously you were not involved at that time. When did, when did the Innocence Project actually get involved? So we don't get involved in an individual's case until their direct appeal is over because um, they still have the right to counsel uh, during their direct appeal. And we're, we're pro bono um, attorneys who handle post-conviction. So we go through a different vehicle because our cases largely rely on new evidence that the jury didn't hear at the time of the trial. So Ricky had actually written to us during his direct appeal. A lot of our clients, that's how we learn of these cases is that the client themselves reaches out to us. And I think Ricky's understating when, when the, I think he said, absolutely is the word of like maintaining his innocence. I have probably hundreds of letters from Ricky and every single one of those letters, he's professing his innocence in, in right. those letters. And, um, when we got involved was when his his conviction was reaffirmed on, on direct appeal. And so I actually personally got involved in his case back in 2010, which was within months of joining the Innocence Project. Um, and, and Ricky's case was one of my one of my first cases that I took on with them. Thank okay. God. <laughs> Thank God. So let me just back up before we get to 2010. I, I kind of want to walk the listeners through. So Ricky, you find out in the newspaper that your ex-girlfriend's now implicating you in a murder that you have professed you've never committed. So at some point then, I think it was sometime around 2002, you got charged by, by the DA's office in El Dorado County, right? Yes, ma'am, I was. So, um, and, and Connie was also charged. Correct. She she claimed that she was involved in this murder as well. Yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am. They they talked her into her saying that she participated in certain ways. Right. And and in fact, I believe she when she gave a statement and 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 claimed she was involved, I believe she claimed that she was the one that bit Jane Hilton which was a very, very significant piece of information that ultimately led to um, disproving that through um, the DNA that we're gonna talk about in a little bit. But when you got arrested in, in May of 2002, now remember this is almost 20 years ago now, Ricky, May of 2002, were you in, in custody or in jail the entire time until you ultimately got exonerated? Yes, so, you know, when, when you get arrested in May of 2002, knowing that you did not commit this crime, how did you, I mean, what was your reaction? I, I would imagine it was surreal, like you said before. You know, it, it, when I was first charged, I, my thought on it was, this is crazy. They're going to see it for what it is. And that really took a long time to happen. It, it, took, it took a long time. What did you think about when you heard that Connie had given a confession implicating you and herself, um, what did you think about that? I thought, she's crazy. That's crazy. And the more I read into it, the crazier I got. It's like falling into a rabbit hole. Yeah, that probably felt like a dark hole you were never going to get out of, I would imagine. Um, no, that's untrue. As it was progressing, my, my whole thought was somebody's eventually going to read this to see it for what it is. And that didn't happen for a long time. <laughs> yeah, very long time. So the case goes to trial. Um, I think if I'm, my memory's right, it goes to trial in 2005. So, and you testified uh, consistent with everything you're telling us today, right? Yes, ma'am. The day the jury came back and said guilty, um, I would imagine that was just another kind of gut punch kind of day. 
Yeah, I don't remember much of it about that day. I felt afterwards, I felt like catatonic, for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. How much, when you were sentenced, what was the sentence? Um, I was given a fifteen to year, fifteen years to life, with a one year enhancement for the use of a weapon, the use of a knife. Okay. And so I'm assuming then, you know, you're doing everything you can. You have a lawyer on your on your appeal. Um, yeah. In North, you know, challenging this again. That your conviction uh, was upheld by the Third District Court of Appeals. That was a. Uh, Melissa talks about how she doesn't get involved until after those are done. Um, right. And then you all you also filed what's called a habeas petition, right? You did you did a lot of this stuff on your own, didn't you? Yes, ma'am, I did. I'm mean, you're kind of forced to in the system when the lawyer will do the initial appeal and then you're pretty much on your own after that. With time okay. restraints, I might add. What uh, you were convicted and then sentenced to prison. So where where did you ultimately land in prison? Um, I started out in Tracy. I went to Corcoran, Solano, and Pelican Bay. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't, you know, I've never stood in your shoes, Ricky, so I'll be honest with you. I can't imagine what it must be like to, to spend years, over, what, 15, 16 years um, in prison. So ultimately, though, tell us about... It doesn't have any understanding, so I can see how you can't find understanding in it it is crazy yeah i can't imagine i really can and i all i can do is empathize um so ultimately your appeal gets affirmed and then what led you to reach out to melissa at the innocence project well i had written over 1100 letters to every law figure every political figure anybody i could i was just reaching out and uh I received approximately 1% back on the 1100 letters and probably 90% of the 1% all recommended the uh, Right to Innocence Project. Up to that point, okay. I'd never heard of the Innocence Project. Well, um, right well, in 2005, I yeah, believe. Yeah, you're right. It was, he had been writing to numerous individuals, including the Innocence Project, our project, um, prior to 2010. But then when his direct appeal was a re was when his conviction was affirmed, he then wrote us again. And then we opened his case in 2010. I think what's what's hard is because of our limited resources, we are we are a nonprofit. Um, it takes us right. several years before we can even start investigating a case, um, just because we, we get so many requests for assistance a year. So is it 2012 that you kind of got to Ricky's case? Is that the best way to describe it because of the volume of cases you have? So I, I began working on Ricky's case in 2010. And one of the things I, I think we take pride in is we do a lot of our own investigation before we would even turn to law enforcement to, you know, to see like, can we do DNA testing? Is, you know, we figure out first what happened in the case. Are we dealing with a wrongful conviction and, and what is the best path for proving the wrongful conviction. In Ricky's case, we were developing all of this information and by 2012 was when we were in a position to contact the district attorney's office in El Dorado County to start talking about um, DNA testing in the case. So he's convicted in 2005. You go to the DA's office in El Dorado in 2012 I'm assuming it's a different, it's obviously Vern Pearson is the DA now at the time. He wasn't the DA back at the time of the conviction of Ricky, right? Correct. Yep. And, and how was his reaction when you asked for this kind of what we call in our world of post-conviction testing or analysis, right? Yes, absolutely. So as um, you highlighted already, where we started with the case was, you know, everything rested on Connie Dahl. And the beautiful thing about Ricky's court of appeal decision is the court actually said, if you believe Connie, then the evidence of guilt was overwhelming, right? And so everything hinged on her credibility. And we examined the hours of interrogations of Connie Dahl. And there was a single piece of physical evidence that she links to herself that um, we believed would, would 
either prove her credibility or disprove it. And it was the bite mark. And what's really important about that bite mark is in the transcripts, it's indisputable that law enforcement was who fed that fact to Connie Dahl. She did not know that Jane had been bitten during the attack. Um, And so law enforcement says, you know, she's been bitten. And Connie is like, no. And they said, well, we think you bit her. And ultimately she she agrees that she bit um, Jane. When we went to the DA's office in 2012 and and I was dealing with an amazing district attorney there, uh, Trish Kelleher, and um, she was just incredible. And I, I laid it out for her. Like, we really think Connie's, you know, credibility hinges on this. They didn't test the bite mark um, at the time preceding trial. And um, because it was such a pointed thing, uh, the DA's office said, well, let's, let's test it. And they recommended the Sacramento County Crime Lab because they had worked extensively with them in the past and, and knew what I ultimately learned was that they're just a phenomenal crime lab. Okay, so not to just give a shout out, but you know, the crime lab that we have is run by the DA's office. And I think that's part of the reason I hope that we've had a good longstanding relationship is that, you know, we have to be willing to look at these cases. And, um, you know, I've said it 100,000 times, it is DNA is the greatest tool we can have to find the truth, no matter where it leads us. So it was in 2004, if if my, my notes are correct, that you went, you came to us, and you asked our crime lab and probably Jill Spriggs, who was the head of our lab at the time, um, to do some kind of testing, right? Yes, yeah, so 2012. 2012 is when we came. Yes. Okay. And, um, yeah, Jill Spriggs was the director at the time. And we had a previous relationship with her as well, just from other cases. And um, Angelin Shaw was assigned to the case. Yeah, so Angel, um, I mean, I know her well, but I mean, I'm sure you would attest to the fact that this was not a simple, this is not a simple case to look at. You know, you have a nightgown that's saturated with a tremendous amount of blood. So Melissa, kind of walk the listeners through, like, what did that entail? I mean, from your perspective as an Innocence Project lawyer. When we asked for the bite mark to be DNA tested, the very first thing we learned, and, and I should say, the Sacramento County Crime Lab held numerous meetings with both myself and the district attorney from El Dorado County who was assigned to the case, Trish at the time. And, and so we were learning everything at the exact same time and, and kind of you know pivoted when we needed to. Um, the first thing we learned was that the bite mark itself had not been swabbed by, um, at the time um, back in 1985. From her body? From her, her body, body. correct. Right. And but the but there was an image. The the pathologist, the coroner, had taken a photograph of the bite mark, and it was it was a very um, it was it, it was a very strong photograph of the bite mark, and and it was never disputed that this bite mark um, happened during the crime, which again was something that was really important. The FBI at the time, the sheriff's department back in you know nineteen ninety nine, early two thousands, wanted uh, Jane's nightgown tested because they wanted to determine the source of that bite mark. That's how significant that piece of evidence was to the case. And, and as you mentioned, because the nightgown was so saturated in, in Miss Hilton's blood, they just felt like they were looking for a needle in a haystack. And, and so then fast forward to 2012. And the first thing that Angel did, of course, was was got the nightgown and looked to determine the front from the back of the, of the nightgown to figure out where to look for this because it was Jane's left posterior shoulder. The nightgown had no tag on the front or back. So you couldn't determine which way it was worn. And I highlight this not to bog down in details, but it's to demonstrate how just thorough Angel Shaw was in this case. I mean, she studied crime scene photos until she found a pattern on the nightgown that was distinct from the front, from the back to determine which side um, would have the relevant um, DNA evidence. And 
she did it almost blindly because she did the testing first and found results and then ultimately found the front from the back. So let me ask you this, Ricky, if I can just, you know, bring you back in. You're, you're in prison. You have obviously been in contact with Melissa and the Innocence Project. Were you aware that they were going to do this testing? Our lab was going to do this testing on the, the nightgown? I was just aware that they were going to retest any biological evidence that they had. And then eventually I became aware of the nightgown testing and how significant it was to find results on it. Okay. Uh, so before you found out the results of the nightgown, I mean, did you, did you feel hopeful? Um, I, I always felt hopeful. I, I always knew that eventually the truth would come out. I've always known that. Well, I commend you for having that kind of positive attitude in a very difficult situation. You know, that so, stems from, from being raised as a child. You always believe, you always told to tell the truth. The truth comes around full circle. And honestly, it's the best policy. All those little cliches, they're really true. Angel spends hundreds probably of hours if i'm not underestimating it but meticulously mapping out this nightgown she gets some dna testing results and the results are that the bite mark um, two things one it's not connie doll and two it's not ricky davis uh, but perhaps most importantly it's some other unknown male that's right and and again, what was interesting was, so the first thing that Angel did was she tested the nightgown for an enzyme that's found in saliva called amylase. And that is what she detected first in, in two areas of the nightgown. And that's why it was so critical for her to figure out what was the front from the back to figure out the significance of, of finding amylase in, in kind of two locations. And then, um, and she then discovered a mixture of DNA in what we now know was the left posterior shoulder. And it was Jane's DNA, which was not surprising because her blood was on the nightgown, but then an unknown male DNA profile and a, a strong unknown male DNA profile. And in, as you highlighted, Amory, Connie Dahl was excluded, but Ricky was excluded. And, and our position at that point was, this was so significant to her credibility and to the case that this proves that Ricky didn't do it. So there, there was a, one other piece of evidence that I think was also important, which was some fingernail scrapings, right? Correct. And so, and if I may just say, this was, this was such a horrible crime and Miss Hilton fought for her life, really fought right. for her life. And, and in doing so, identify, we, we believe identified yeah. her attacker, you know, and, and when she was found, her hands were clenching hairs. So you knew how intimately she was fighting. Those hairs ended up missing at some tenure during the case. So we'd never been able to find those hairs. They were, they were gone um, before Ricky was convicted. Um, so we could never test the hairs but Miss Hilton suffered injuries to her hands because she fought her attacker that were clearly defensive wounds. And so um, the fingernail scrapings um, were also tested. And while they didn't reveal a lot of biological evidence as, as we do expect to find a majority of the DNA to be that of the victim, there was um, enough DNA there for us to be able, for us, for Angel to be able to, um, to compare that to the unknown male DNA profile that she found on the left posterior shoulder and they were consistent with each other. A huge piece of evidence, at least in my view. I mean, when you, when you talk about it, you know, what this woman went through in the last hours of her death, you know, she did speak to us. I've always said that DNA is, can be the silent witness to the truth. And there's probably no better example than this case because it spoke to that struggle and that homicide, that murder, and who the perpetrator most importantly was not. And that was not Ricky. Um, so now Ricky, when did you find out, if, if you don't mind me asking, when did you find out that the DNA on the nightgown was not yours? And it was not Connie's, and it was somebody else's. 
Well, I always knew it wasn't mine or Connie's during the testing. I never even contemplated that. I was just glad that they found the Annalise to determine who it was. Okay. So I would imagine a huge relief that you've now got some physical evidence that supports what you've been saying since, since 1985, really. Well, I didn't really realize the significance of it. I just figured it was just another lie that, that Connie said. Um, I, I didn't really realize how important it actually was. Right, right. Okay, so let's fast forward, Melissa. You have this information. This came, I believe, in kind of late 2013 or so. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so then um, kind of walk us through, like, we, we have this evidence. Where do we go from here now? DNA is such a beautiful investigative tool, but it is also what I've learned to be a completely double-edged sword in criminal cases because on the front end, it, it is viewed as this amazing investigative tool, but on the back end, because people believe that the person who's convicted is the one who committed the crime, it's not, and it, it out the gate is not given the weight that it typically is at the front end of an, of an investigation. And so when, when we got these results from the nightgown, we were like, that's, that's it. This proves Ricky's innocent. It proves that Connie was not testifying truthfully. Um, we have the transcripts that show how that happened. We know enough about false confessions. He should come home. And at that point is when, you know, this case, this crime happened in 1985. DNA didn't start entering our courtrooms until the earliest, you know, 1990, maybe 89 was, I think, the very first case in which DNA profiling was used to solve a crime. And, and OJ Simpson's case hadn't happened yet, which really kind of put DNA right. on every, on at least the public's radar on it. And so there were a lot of concerns and questions as to the collection of evidence back in 1985. Was there anything that could have been done that could have contaminated the nightgown with an innocent person's day making this evidence less significant? And so you're, you're kind of in a place of going, well, how do, how do we establish that that's not true? So we scoured you know, the hundreds of pages of Ricky's case to identify any law enforcement officer, the coroner, the assistant coroner, who would have come in contact with Jane's body and with the nightgown. And then the DA's office assisted in getting reference samples from each of those individuals. And the crime lab developed their profiles, compared them to the sample, and none of them connected. So now the universe of innocent contamination started to shrink significantly and, and, and it became just more apparent how significant these results were. It wasn't until about 2015 that we then did the fingernail scrapings too. And it was, it was actually pretty amazing. I still remember this. Jill Spriggs called all of us into their office. Angel did this. Amazing and just to be clear, Jill is the crime lab director. Excuse me. The crime lab director brought everyone in Angel did this amazing presentation on the results. We all watched the crime scene video together. And Ms. Spriggs said, if this case landed on our desk today, what items of evidence would we test? Let's treat it that way. Let's go back and look at all this evidence that still exists and let's test it and see what we find. And that's when we ended up getting the results of the fingernail scrapings as well which in our opinion corroborated yeah. that this was a legitimate profile. So you after that comes back uh, and i will just you know i will just say this to me this is a testament the willingness of the lab folks the da's office the innocence project to all come together to try to make sure that the right the truth is found 
again, wherever it's, wherever it's led to. Um, so 2000, late 2015 is when the fingernail scrapings come back. 2016, you file what's called a motion for a new trial, right? We've, we, we filed a habeas petition at the time, um, which ultimately the relief for habeas would be to get uh, a new trial for Ricky. Um, and the habeas petition, where a habeas differs from a direct appeal, you know, just for the audiences, a direct appeal is limited to the four corners of a trial, whatever happened, you know, in that trial. We always say if it's not in the transcripts, you know, then, then we can't really challenge it. Where we live in habeas work is it's new evidence. It's evidence that the jury didn't get to hear either because it was missed back then or it, it didn't exist back then. And, and the latter was what happened here. Yeah, I mean, and in the world of DNA, we have evolved significantly in, in the ability to look at extremely low level amounts, which I would imagine in this particular case, those fingernail scrapings, first of all, you would never have gotten that in 1985. We never have gotten it in 1999 when it was reopened. Um, and perhaps uh, despite you know the horrors of Mr. Davis being in prison, the advancement of that technology actually was one of the most important things to move this case forward, right? A hundred percent. And it's, it's actually quite ironic because the advancements in DNA um, of being able to isolate male DNA when you have a female victim, that was significant for the fingernail testing. For the nightgown though, which what was hard was, you know, amylase, looking for amylase had always existed, you know. That's saliva, right? Yeah, exactly. The enzyme in saliva. saliva. Like it's, it's using starch paper with, you know, and, and there's a technique to it. And that technique was not new. And so again, you know, when you get, it's really hard to fight a case post-conviction, like really sure. hard. And one of the things, and, and Ricky highlighted this, there's a lot of procedural barriers that you run into. And so the fact that this technology for the nightgown at least did exist back in you know 1999 when they did original DNA testing in the case, we had to explain why they didn't do it and why the court should consider the results now. And so we found emails between you know, the FBI and then we also had the testimony from one of the cold case detectives in which he's asked during trial, is there anything else you would have wanted DNA results in? And his answer was, I would have loved to have gotten DNA from the bite mark. And right. he says it, and the jury heard that. And that just became so significant to the case because we, we basically went into court and said, judge, law enforcement wanted this. They've been asking for it. It wasn't done back then. Now right. it has been done, and here's the results. And and it doesn't, right. and it proves that Ricky's innocent. So, when you went back to the court, you ultimately did a hearing, correct? In front in El Dorado County, Angel Shaw testified about her results, right? Yes, she did. It was a, it was a day long okay. trial. I'm um, excuse me, day long hearing with Ricky present, and she testified to her results. And what were the, what was the outcome of that? Um, what happened after that evidentiary hearing is that the court reversed Ricky's conviction, finding that had the jury heard these DNA results, it's more likely than not that they would have reached a different verdict or excuse me, a different outcome, um, in, including even if they hung on the case, but they would have right. reached a different outcome. And the court reversed the case, which meant that the DA's office could retry um, Ricky, but the jury got to hear these DNA results this time. So um, was Ricky there for this hearing? So we actually, Ricky was present during the evidentiary hearing when we got the court's ruling because we had to go back and, and make oral argument. If I, if I may just add a, a, a piece to this, California has the highest um, burden of proof for proving one's innocence. It, it's that the evidence has to point unerringly to innocence and completely undermine the prosecution's case. That, that is California's law for innocence. And if you could imagine 
no one could meet that. No one could meet that standard. So our office advocated for a change in the law to change the standard for newly discovered evidence that if you had new evidence, here's the new burden that you had. And we were following 43 other states that had this law. We weren't being, you know, right. Uh, yeah, right. But this change in the law happened after we filed Ricky's habeas before the evidentiary hearing happened. And so a lot of what happened after Ricky's the evidentiary hearing was we had to brief the law because we were dealing with a brand new law right. on, on what new evidence meant. Um, and, and that's what we had to do. And then the court issued a written decision, um, which, Rick, you know, Rick, neither Ricky nor I were present for the court. Like, he didn't read it from the record, but it was a written decision. And, and I don't know if some people know this, but I can't just call Ricky right. to tell him at this. the jail, at the yeah, prison, I can't call yeah. him in prison for this life changing um, news. Moment. But I can get so a message. From his counselor. Okay, so you got a message to the prison? I did. Okay. Not telling them what but just telling them can you can you have Ricky call me? <laughs> okay, so Ricky, let me ask you this. When you did talk to Melissa about the court reversing your conviction. Just kind of walk us through what that was like. Um, you know, just shortly before that, the court granting uh, an evidentiary hearing is a milestone. Right. Um, the fact that they were going to reverse my conviction, uh, it, yeah, I don't really know how to describe it. It, uh, it felt like it's about time. <laughs> Yeah, it was about time. Yeah, the point. Um, the evidentiary hearing was, like I said, a milestone. You very seldom are granted evidentiary hearing through habeas or through any other way. Um, I would like to commend Honorable Judge Malikit. He did the right thing, and I don't know that too many judges would have would have made that decision without just rubber stamping it and pushing it through the system, like more cases are not. Right, right. How about you, Melissa? What did you? How did you feel when you found out that the judge reversed? Um, so, despite being from New Jersey, I um, can break down in tears at any given moment <laughs> with our clients' cases. And so, when we got the written decision, I ran out into my office, and and you know, we're such a small office that everyone's case is everyone's case, right? Like, and and so. Right. I was just screaming about the, the decision. And then of course you have to sit there and go, but I got to communicate this to, to Ricky. And I will say this and, and Ricky, I don't know if you remember this, but when I told, so he did call me and I tell him what happened and there was just silence, just silence on his end of the phone. And, and it just like, just hitting him. And of course, like it just made me more emotional just hearing right. that he, he couldn't even kind of talk in that in that moment when we when we knew this but of course also recognizing that the fight wasn't over at that point well when, when you say that when you say fight was not over that's because the case has been reversed but the da still has if if they so choose they can still try to retry him if they think there is sufficient evidence or there might be new evidence fair to say correct yep and we know that so all of our cases and our clients do too yeah, I mean, and, I mean, I'll just kind of tell you, and you know this obviously now, I don't know if you knew it at the time, but when the case was reversed, I mean, within a matter of a week or two, El Dorado DA was calling our office, calling me to say, hey, can you guys do genealogy? Because we don't know who, who does this male DNA belong to under the fingernails and on the bite mark. Um, did you have any knowledge at the time that that's what the next steps were? No, we had no idea that genetic genealogy was was being looked into or pursued at that time. Yeah, and for me, uh, you know, when Vern Pearson asked me to do that, I mean, obviously, for the listeners, many people know that, you know, we, it was involved in the Golden State Killer, it's been used in many, many other cases throughout this country. But never in my career um, had had it ever been used. And really, I don't think it had ever been used in California genealogy to see to use it on a post-conviction case to determine if somebody um, not only 
factually innocent, but can you identify who it belongs to? So, you know, we're going to do another episode on this, this piece of it is what did that involve? But, you know, obviously at some point, Melissa and Ricky, you find out that genetic genealogy has in fact led to somebody else. And tell us how you found out and, and, you know, what your thoughts were. So Ricky was in county at that point because once his conviction was released, county jail, right? I'm sorry. It's um, okay. He he was moved from prison um, where he'd been living for for many years to to county jail, and which in some ways is easier to communicate with somebody because I could we could get there faster and easier. Um, but I was actually sick with the flu. <laughs> And oh my goodness. I was home from work and I got a call from Vern Pearson on my my home cell phone number. And um and he said, Can you be here uh Wednesday for or was Wednesday or Thursday uh, that he called me? I'm sorry, and it was Friday that we were gonna be up there. Can you be here for a press conference? Ricky's going home genetic genealogy has linked the DNA to an individual we believe is responsible. And I was just in disbelief. And, and at the time, uh, Ricky's trial lawyer at the time, because we don't handle um, our cases on the retrial because our expertise is in post-conviction, his um, amazing attorney, Missy Vandeviver, um, she and I got on the phone together and we're like, oh my gosh, what, like at, at that point, we really still didn't know what happened. Like, right, happened. right what happened and Ricky was already in county jail so the DA's office actually went um to see Ricky to tell him um Vern Pearson personally went to go talk yeah. to Ricky about what was going to happen so Ricky what did tell me about that moment when Vern the, the elected DA of El Dorado County now, again, he wasn't the DA at the time of your conviction, but he's now the new DA, not the new, but the current DA. I mean, what was that like for you, Ricky, to have him come to the jail and visit you? Um, you know, at first I thought, well, um, more bullshit. Excuse me. Right. Right. That's okay. That's that's honest. And shortly after listening to him or whatever, um, it was nice to be vindicated. It was nice to hear it. It was nice to hear the apology from the district attorney's office. The very same that right. just said shortly before that, that, well, DNA evidence doesn't mean anything if Ricky can't say whom and when it was deposited on the body. That was like right. one of the most absurd things I've ever heard in my life. But um, it was nice to get an apology. It's nice to be vindicated. It's nice to hear that, hey, we messed up and we're sorry. Yeah, well... It's a long time coming, that's for sure. Um, and if I may so, say, um, sure. Emily, that doesn't happen a lot in our cases. You know, it's it's not often that the that the DA's office apologizes to our clients. And so I I, I think that was very significant in this case as well. Um, I think Ricky was in disbelief in the beginning too. And, and I think he thought he was getting out kind of almost on a technicality and, and Ricky was like, no, I will stay in here and, until I'm, I'm proven innocent. And that's when it ultimately came out that they were recognizing that he was factually innocent. Right. So um, we all did a press conference together. I think it was February of 2020. Same day that, that you went to court, right? That's right. The morning of February 13th, 2020, um, we went into court the DA's office had already written a statement establishing Ricky's factual innocence. Um, a lot of the information in that document we had never known. Um, and so we had Missy Vandeviver and I had the opportunity before court to go into a room with Ricky to read the statement to him. Um, and that was the like that was real time of all three of us digesting what the DA was saying about why they believe him to be factually innocent. And it, it was all linked to the DNA results um, that judge Malikian had reversed his conviction conviction based on. I would assume too, they put it somewhere in that document. I never read it, but I assume it has also to do with once that 
the DNA was done by Angel Shaw, then the next step of this genealogy ultimately was, it was a critical piece, right? Ricky, I, I do not bite my tongue on this. Um, there, if genetic genealogy wasn't done in this case, there was a significant concern that Ricky could be wrongfully convicted again in a retrial. Um, Connie Dahl had passed away um, previous right. to, the, to the retrial in this case, which was set, by the way, for April of 2020. And this came right. about February 2020. And the court had already ruled that um, they would permit Connie Dahl's testimony to be read into the trial, um, which, you know, is supported by Harry. You know, yeah. evidence rules and, 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 you know, wasn't surprising, although because of what the DNA evidence did to her credibility, you know, we felt that Ms. Ms. Vandeviver had a really strong argument as she fought very hard to try to get that out, but we knew it was coming in. And there's always that fear of, of, of wrongful. I mean, it happens the first time. And so you're always fearful it's going to happen again. And so genetic genealogy is that's, that was that superseding event that just stopped a, a second injustice, not just for Ricky, which is, indescribable, but also from right. family. Right. Right. Because nobody wants, I mean, you know, I've been in the business 30, almost 32 years. I mean, it, it is, um, it makes you skip heartbeats thinking that somebody has been in prison for something they actually did not do. And while we can, we, you and I can debate about the difference between a wrongful conviction and actual innocence. There is no dispute in this case that Ricky told the truth the whole way through, which was he never committed this crime. And, and we can't forget the fact that this was a horrific murder, but the most important thing for today and for this conversation is that an innocent person was convicted. And thank goodness for, for your work, for the DNA work done by the lab, by the genealogy work done by the investigators in the science, because um, Ricky, what you, I don't, I don't know where you'd be today. I'd like to believe you'd, you'd still be out, but um, let me just, let me kind of just ask this. First of all, how did you get out that day, Ricky? Did you get out February 13th? Oh, I guess February 13th, 2020, day before Valentine's okay. Day. <clears throat> so, um, I mean, I saw news stories. Obviously, it was big news the next day. I mean, you know, I'm particularly proud that this is, had never been done in California and, and we should always continue to do it. But I mean, what's it been like since then in terms of just, I think you said something about seeing the sunlight. I don't even know how to say it. It's, it's strange navigating a brand new world. That's fair. That's fair. It's been, it's just nice to be vindicated. You know, they, they made me out to be a monster and a woman killer and, and a lot of other things weren't true. And uh, it's just nice to be vindicated. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your honesty. And I'm sure for Melissa, that's hard. That's hard on you, Melissa, to hear that. How about you, Melissa? Just listening to Ricky and kind of walk this uh, journey with him for, oh, goodness. What'd you say? Two, two children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I've, um, Ricky and I have been on this journey together for, for 10 years and, and, you know, and his mom, you know, I, I got to know his mom really well because, you know, she's home dealing with this. And it just watching him walk out that day. And, and I, I want to back it up one step from reading in reading the DA's statement of factual innocence was really emotionally overwhelming to to see you know, details of, of the genetic genealogy investigation and subsequent investigation that just supported what we had always known. And, 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 you know, you don't do innocence worth without the fear of not being able to prove that your clients are innocent. You know, you, you, you believe yeah. that you believe they're innocent. You, you take the pass and, and some of our clients just, the evidence just isn't there and we can't develop it. And that, that's devastating. And so for us, it was, 
it was huge to see on in paper what we had always believed in the case. And then of course, to see him come home, I, I don't think there's ever enough words to describe what that feels like. You know, uh, being exonerated and having my case overturned was a big thing for me. I, I didn't understand the significance of being declared factually innocent. I've always been factually innocent. <laughs> I didn't need a decoration for it once I was exonerated, you know, um, but the exoneration and the, the case being overturned was a big thing for me. You know, I said this, I've been in this business a long time and uh, it's extraordinary what you did, Melissa, Ricky, your perseverance. I mean, I'd never heard you say, you sent 1100 letters. That's, that's amazing, honestly. And that's a testament to your passion to free yourself. Um, so I just appreciate all that, Melissa, you've done, the work that was done with the DA's office in, in El Dorado, the crime lab in Sacramento. And honestly, I'm just so grateful that, that you all got to the place where Ricky is today in terms of being out for something he did not do. Um, so thank you. I appreciate it very much. Any final thoughts, Melissa or Ricky? I just wanted to say that the Innocence Project is who needs to be commended. Um, that's a great organization. And it was truly needed. And I realized that after those 1,100 letters, and I came to the conclusion that, to be perfectly honest, nobody really gives a damn about innocent people or not enough people give a damn. I, I mean, I do want to say, you know, it's it's we're so fortunate to have advancements in technology or in tools that that help us help us do our job too and Amory as you highlighted Ricky's the first case in California to to establish an exoneration um because of genetic genealogy and only the second in the country two right. in the country and there's there's 20 over 2500 um exonerations in the country and um, and so we're talking about such a small number, and yet it's so impactful and, and huge. And um, we're eternally grateful for the work of the Sacramento County Crime Lab and for the subsequent genetic genealogy um, testing, which I know it's, that's not automatic. You know, us as an innocence organization, we don't have access to it. So it takes people on, on your end for you who believe in doing the right thing and, 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 and believing that innocent people do not belong in prison. And I would just, I just would leave in this sentiment. I don't think that was well worded. I would say this. We always say that the only person who benefits from a wrongful conviction is the true perpetrator. And, um, and that, that can That's be true. said that can be said here with Ricky, you know, he did 15 years of somebody else's time. And all that time, Miss Hilton's family thought they had justice, and they didn't either. And, right. and Connie Dahl even Connie Dahl passed away, having pled to being involved in this horrible crime. And she was innocent too. And, right. and, and, and so she'll never be vindicated. So it just it just demonstrates how wide and how deep the impact is of a wrongful conviction and and it's and it's devastating. And not on not just on the person who spent the time if they're factually innocent in prison, but also the family that has of the victims and the victim themselves. So I just um, you know, I look at this tool, this genetic genealogy, which we'll, we'll talk about again in the next episode to kind of kind of walk through how it happened in this particular case. But I've always been of the opinion that, listen, we've got this tool. Now we have a new advanced tool. We should do it wherever it leads us, no matter where it is, as long as it takes us to the truth. So um, I want to thank you, Ricky. I, I, um, I've never met you in person, um, but I'm honored to speak with you. And I'm just very grateful that you're willing to share your story. And I wish you nothing but health and happiness. And Melissa, you just keep fighting the fight. Um, you know, hey, I'm quite I sure we'll, we'll talk to you. Schubert, I would like to commend yes. you on your work too, because it's noted. And, and before I, uh, I even heard your name again, I've heard it several times throughout the years. And uh, you're a good day. You're a good day. 
Thank you, Ricky. I appreciate that very much. And Melissa, you just keep yourself going and uh, we're always going to have that open line of communications. I know that. So for the listeners out there, just uh, look forward to having you tune in again to InsideCrimeFiles.com and talk more about this case and other cases to come. So thank you all very much. Thank you.